Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Popcorn and Compliance, podcast series where we take a look at movies and try to mine them for leadership and compliance lessons learned. I'm going to begin a series with my colleague Richard Lummis, where we're going to look at movies, and we're going to focus a little bit more on leadership than compliance, but we'll also talk about some of the compliance lessons learned that you can use as you move forward, moving up the ladder to hopefully become a chief compliance officer. It's going to be a fun series. I know you'll enjoy Richard's insights. He's got some great insights. Obviously, a little little bit different than Jay Rosen and Megan Doherty, but that's what makes this series so great. I know you will enjoy it. Today, we take up leadership lessons from the 1985 Oscar-winning movie, Out of Africa, directed by Sidney Pollack. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Richard Lummis. I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experiences in history, business, literature, and politics to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. We're recording this about a series of best picture-winning films from the Oscars. And we try to pick ones with leadership as a key theme to discuss. Today we're going to talk about Out of Africa, starring Meryl Streep and Robert Redford. It was based loosely on the book of the same name by Karen Blick under her pen name, Isaac Dennison. And apparently it's a mashup of that and one called Shadows in the Grass. The movie won seven Academy Awards in 1985, including Best Picture and Best Director for Sidney Pollock. And it grossed $227 million on a budget of $28 million. The movie covers the 18 years or so that Blixen spent in Kenya beginning in 1913. She was Danish from a wealthy family, but after a failed romance, decided to move to Africa and enter a marriage of convenience with Swedish Baron Broer Blixen. The marriage got off to a rocky start when Broer invested her money in a coffee plantation at an altitude too high to be suitable for coffee, instead of in a cattle ranch, as they decreed. He also gave her syphilis, which caused her to go back to Denmark for a year for a lengthy cure. They eventually separated and divorced, but in the meantime, Karen had entered a long-term love affair with Dennis Finch Hatton, an English big game cunner, who's the Redford character. Their relationship's really at the core of the movie, and only ended when Finch Hatton died in a plane crash, which was historically correct in 1931, and about the same time the coffee plantation failed, 
And so Karen Blixen moved back to Denmark to live with her mother for the rest of her life. The movie seems disjointed to me with a lot of threads that are slightly developed and then dropped. Roar's character, Karen's relationship with the Kikiyu people on whose ancestral land the plantation sits, and Karen's own motivations don't seem terribly well developed. The pacing has been accurately described as glacial. The cinematography is amazing, though, and I thought John Barry's score also fit the movie well, and it did win both of those Oscars. Tom, what did you think of this movie after 35 years? So the thing that I remembered from the first time I saw it in the theaters was the thing that struck me when I rewatched it for this podcast, Richard, which was the cinematography. Yeah. It was just absolutely stunning. Since it was filmed in probably 84 or 85, we have to assume those places actually still existed. I'm not sure today <laughs> they did. Whether they existed in the 19-teens or 20s, I don't know, but the cinematography was just outstanding. Lots of aerial shots, back when we used to have aerial shots from planes or helicopters before drones, and just glorious color. You're absolutely right about the pacing, but the painting of the screen with the colors, just I remember being overwhelmed at the movie theater and on the smaller screen of today, it's still just as outstanding. The love affair, I found that interesting because, first of all, no sex, so we didn't have to put up with that, but it was mainly... It seemed to me the Meryl Streep character just talking about how much she loved him. And that was enough to show deep love. And the rest of us were supposed to know that, yep, that's the way it was. So perhaps that's the dis- one of the disjointed parts. But I thought there were some, uh, some lessons for leadership that we could tease out of this uh, movie. If I could maybe start with Karen Blixen. The, and really the first one I wanted to talk about is, you mentioned the, the name of the people that, whose land she was on and the cultural differences. And here I would just challenge any business leader, what are the cultures in your organization? If you're a multinational organization, what are the cultures outside of the United States? How well do you know those cultures? In my life as an anti-corruption specialist, the U.S. Department of Justice emphasizes culture as a key component of whether or not your company is really even going to embrace compliance and or get in trouble. And that's a culture of doing the right thing. Do you have that same culture in every a different culture within your organizations? And what about subcultures within your organizations? Do those exist? And how well do you know that? How well do you, does your management team, have they assessed culture, managed culture, and utilized call going forward? Two weeks ago, we had the world's largest anti-corruption settlement involving Airbus, And I interviewed a French compliance practitioner this morning about what her lesson, the lesson she garnered from that case. And she said, it's culture. It is the board of directors. Did they know what their culture is? And she didn't think that they did. And when they found out, that's when they self-disclosed to British authorities, leading to a multi-jurisdictional investigation. So as a business leader, What's the culture of your organization? And when I say leader, I mean starting with the board of directors, through CEO and senior management, into middle management, and then down. Each level, what's the culture? And more importantly, is at the top of your organization, are you aware of what your culture is? Or do you just have a bunch of yes men blowing smoke up your backside? Yeah. Her relationship with the Kikuyu was an interesting one, and it's come in for a fair amount of criticism for the excessively paternalistic view, which I think is not chronologically correct. But but you're absolutely right. And although she tries to understand the traditions of the locals, she doesn't do a perfect job of it. Among other things, they have very different views of the future. The chief, in one, she's trying to teach them to read. 
or get a missionary to teach them to read while not teaching them to be Christians, which is kind of not in his job description. But, but anyway, the, uh, the chief comes up and makes a mark on a pole and says, no one taller than this can learn to read because he didn't want the young men having a skill that he didn't have. The ones who were smaller than that, he figured he'd be dead before they came along to threaten him. But I thought that was a, it was an interesting metaphor for how a lot of businesses uh, treat possible successions. Uh, when you said that, I really thought of uh, short-termism. Yeah. And what have you done for me this quarter? Because in three quarters, I'll be dead. And that's certainly why many of the people look at Wall Street and their reaction is, what did the street say this quarter? Nixon's yeah. management of the coffee plantation, in the first place, they put it in the wrong spot. The altitude was too high to effectively grow coffee. And then, of course, you lose five years while the trees mature. So it was economically a disastrous decision, but she was too stubborn to admit it, I think in part because it was a beautiful place. Yes. So there were some lessons that I came across, Richard, doing research about this movie from an Australian woman. I think her name is Jane Mansell. And she wrote about lessons from out of Africa in the context of a safari she went on. And I thought these were interesting for a lead. So I just wanted to go through those. One was the unpredictability of the journey, because in Africa, death can occur at any time. And I think in this day and age, in 2020, perhaps that's even more true on the unpredictability of the journey. You don't know where your next risk is going to be because you don't have full access or knowledge as to who you're doing business with. You don't know all of your third parties on the sales side. You don't know all of your third parties on the supply chain side. If they engage in some behavior that blows back on your company, it may be you're completely unprepared for it. The second is the cycle of life. And that perhaps was made a little more knowledgeable or a little more used by Disney in The Lion King. But part of the circle of life is letting go. And that was one of the reasons Karen Blixen failed, I think that you correctly noted, was she she was too stubborn to let go. And that perhaps she could have cut her losses and done something else, but no, she was determined to stay on. I think we can both safely say we kept doing things for too long (laughs) in the face of perhaps economic information, which would have allowed someone else to make a different decision. I certainly think that we both have engaged in that. But at some point, you do have to let go. And I've had businesses that failed. And at some point, I realized I had to let go and I moved on. The lesson I learned, I hope, that perhaps I can convey is if you're going to try a new business line, give yourself a specific time frame. I don't (laughs) go ahead and budget. The next is, and this one is certainly something that every leader needs to embrace. The quietness is where learning comes from unexpectedly. As a modern business leader, your day is usually booked from 8 to 7 with meetings, and then you work before then and after then. It's when you try to do some thinking work. But what about quiet time? One of the things that always I remember about Richard Nixon was that he said a president needed one hour a day of quiet time just to think. So as a business leader, do you have time to think? And do you have quiet time? Do you have time for, I don't mean to suggest this is spiritual renewal, although perhaps that could certainly be a byproduct, but do you just have time to sit and think? Because you might come up with a new idea, or you might come up with a new approach, or you might synthesize the information that's been presented to you in a new and different way. So quietness, and certainly Africa and safari can be a place of quietness. And I think you're absolutely right. In the modern world, there's a tendency to feel that every minute should be filled with answering emails or returning phone calls or catching up on the news on the internet. 
there's endless opportunities to eat up your time. And I don't know about an hour a day, but certainly 20 or 30 minutes might be helpful for everybody. The next one I really liked as well, which is leadership is not knowing. I think we have finally gotten to to the place where it is acceptable for a leader to say, I don't know, but I will find out. Certainly, I grew up in a world where a leader was expected to know the answer. And if you didn't know the answer, that disqualified you from being the leader. If you surround yourself with smarter people, you can get the answer. And so it's okay not to know, but it's not okay not to study up if you've been presented with a true issue that you need to decide on. So it's acceptable not to have the answer immediately. Yeah, I guess that is a change, the, uh, but it's simply not possible to know everything anymore. And it's you're probably better off relying on smarter people, smarter, harder-working people that you've managed to hire and pay very little. Richard, next, we talked about this in a prior podcast, but the movie, once again, brought up for me business resiliency. We talked about that in terms of the failure of the coffee plantation. I think uh, here we didn't have failure because of a catastrophic disaster. Here we had a business that was going to be extraordinarily difficult to succeed given where it started from. Any thoughts? One of the things I thought was great was in that same article by the Stevenson Manziel Group about the acronym of VUCA, which they got out of the military, which describes the situation as volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, which is probably not the best place to be, but it certainly describes a great deal of life. Do you think a movie still holds up today, Richard? The cinematography and the scenery certainly did. There are some other stuff in it that I like. The, the character of Finch Hatton, Redford's performance has come in for a lot of criticism as being too wooden. But one of the reviews I read pointed out that he really didn't have a role to perform other than just looking pretty and standing in the scenery. But for instance, one of the things he did that I thought was good was he was constantly scouting and analyzing, and he adopted technology in the form of the biplane. He was reckless in some ways. According to the movie, he learned to fly in a day, which is not historically correct. He actually went through a standard pilot training program. But but he was very methodical in his preparation for going on safari. He used the plane to do reconnaissance for where the game was, but also where his competition was and how to avoid them. He did treat us very poorly. At one point, he, he instructs Blixen to simply ignore his companion. But the I think the movie holds up. It's more of a chick flick than I remembered. It's still a lot of fun. Right. I certainly agree on the cinematography. Also, if I could say another word about the soundtrack, I thought it was just big and sweeping and everything yeah. that a, such a production of Africa should be in terms of a soundtrack. The aerial photography was just fabulous. The... Um, it's interesting your characterization of the Robert Redford character. I felt, I guess I felt like he really had no role other than to just stand around and be Robert Redford. <laughs> I remember at one point he was laying down an ivory tusk, and even in 1987, the hunting of elephants, if not banned, we was certainly frowned upon, so that made an impression because certainly hunting of ivory has changed quite a bit. But I really appreciated your comments around the, his embracement of technology and how he could bring what was a technological innovation, uh, the biplane, uh, in Africa to a uh, time-honored business, which still is, Safari, and was at the time. And utilizing that information, or utilizing the tool, the technological tool of the biplane, to garner information to make his business uh, more efficient and better for his stakeholders in the form of his customers, but also, as you correctly note, 
around his competitors as well. He could also use it as risk management to scout out locations that were appropriate and or inappropriate. So the embracement of technology is we've now done a series of podcasts over several hundred years, and it's been fun to see people who do embrace technology. That's not a new phenomenon. And we tend to think that we're undergoing a period of absolutely unprecedented change. But the first time we see Finch Hatton, he's using an ox cart. And that would have been in 1915 or eight, maybe as late as 18. I guess in the movie it's set in 1914. But he, immediately after the war, he adopts motor cars to to safari use. And then he adopts the plane. And when you think about the rate of change that he was adapting to, it's not that much different. Absolutely correct. And then if you overlay in Africa on that and how much change that meant in Africa, let alone a developed country at that point in time, you're absolutely correct. The movie was still fun to watch. You're right about the wrong, perhaps not as much calm, but certainly a romantic picture, chick flick. My wife certainly enjoyed watching it. Robert Redford is one good-looking man, so I think we all have to acknowledge that. And he was at the peak of his powers in the 80s. Meryl Streep is is no shrinking violet herself, one of our greatest actresses. But for me, it was was the cinematography. It was the scenery. It was Africa that was a star for me. And yeah, put it on the biggest screen you can find. It's really worth it. That's it for now. Until next time, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox. We hope you'll join us next time. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Popcorn and Compliance. I hope you'll join Richard and I again as we continue to explore leadership lessons from classic Oscar-winning movies. I'd also like to tell you about a great new podcast series, which has premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network. That's The Corruption Files, where with Hughes Hubbard partner Mike DeBernardis, we take a look at some of the top anti-corruption compliance enforcement actions across the globe. It's a great review of enforcement actions, literally 15 years old and coming forward, what they meant then and what they continue to mean now, all on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.